This is John Cackley, and welcome to Centric Biz and Tech Talks. Today I'm talking with Becky Gandillon about small data in big experiments. All right. So good morning, Becky. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. So just to kick off, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Whatever you're willing to share. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I won't edit myself too much. Uh, I'm Becky Gandillon. I work for Centric Consulting, and I'm the local data and analytics service offering lead here in St. Louis. So I lead a small but brave crew of data nerds as we work to solve problems here. My background actually is in engineering. Uh, all my education was biomedical engineering specifically, and I used that degree at the Department of Veterans Affairs for about a decade before I made the hop over into full-time analytics and into consulting. So I focus in on data strategy now. So I dabble in a little bit of everything. I like doing architecture and business intelligence and visualization, but really helping companies make the most of the data that they have and get the biggest value out of it. That's what I like doing sort of for my real job, I call it. Uh, <laughs> I also, I, I dabble, I like doing data storytelling. So helping people understand data, relate to data, engage with data. And related to that, I, in my free time, I do a lot of Disney World analytics. So crowd <laughs> predictions and okay. that sort of thing. Uh, it helps. I have two small kids at home and a husband. And so the Disney plays well into that. But I'm a mix of a lot of different interests, awesome. which is fun awesome. and exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> so our conversation was triggered by you having one of sort of the top blogs or most read blogs from Centric in the last year or so. And so just to recap, the blog was you and what was about 17 I forget how many. I forget how many friends, friends there were versus yeah. how many flavors of. Uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. There are about twenty people, I think, total that participated. So yeah, I have a group of friends. Uh, we all live in St. Louis, but mm -hmm. near the beginning and, and still today during the pandemic, we didn't get together much in person. Still wanted to hang out though, so we did a series actually of these tasting tournaments, mm -hmm. and so we'd all get various drinks or snacks or whatever the case may be and all independently rate them on a bracket. And so we'd each come up with an individual winner and et cetera. And then I would gather all of the data to figure out things like which was the best flavor overall, which was the most controversial that had the widest array of opinions, whose taste specifically was the weirdest compared to everyone else. <laughs> Things like that. So it was a lot of fun data, but also fun with friends in a virtual way. Cool. Uh, so I don't want to steal the thunder from it. I recommend people read the blog article, but we'll also talk about some of the techniques you used yeah. uh, in this conversation. I guess the main question I have is I read your blog article and I really enjoyed it, but you get down to some really interesting insights about on a very small set of data. So what did your friends think? <laughs> what do my friends think? So what you didn't get to see in the blog article is that they came along with some pretty hilarious visualizations. Since I do data storytelling and visualizations, the friends got a PowerPoint deck because I'm a consultant, so that's what I do, <laughs> of uh, the various cans of LaCroix at making various facial expressions or <laughs> uh, being happy about how they did or sad about how they performed. 
etc. My friends thought it was hilarious. So I've done this for several. We've done jelly beans. We've done Oreos. We've done Pop-Tarts. Uh, and usually after I complete my analytics, they'll send me a couple of my favorite because <laughs> they like knowing the right. results. Oftentimes it's kind of unexpected what comes out. So that's a lot of fun to watch. So maybe you've trained your friends, but what I get from that is that people are interesting, interested in the analysis. They, oh, they want to hear, was there something deeper that, that could be found there? Not just, gee, everybody liked this flavor and everybody hated this flavor. Right, they're, they're exactly. Look, they it's want like getting that in, in on a connection. secret, right? Right. So in the blog, I talk a lot about the overall winners and things that could inform a business's decisions moving forward, which is a totally valid and important outcome. On a personal level, the things that my friends enjoy more are things like their best match. So right. whose taste do they match up to the most? Uh, and then that leads to some funny, like, I matched with someone else's husband and like weird, you know, it's just silly. <laughs> Uh, or often my kids usually participate in these. So often the kids will have the weirdest tastes or you'll see the kids in a cohort, but one adult will have a kid's taste and they'll match with all the kids and not the yeah, adults. I'd be right there. And so yeah. getting to like yeah. rib each other a little bit about how different we are and how weird we are. That's the fun sort of like relating it on a personal level that makes that data impactful on an individual right. level. Cool. So we're going to dive into this a little bit more, but I just want another question. I mean, somebody might ask, can small data be too small, right? I mean, yeah. to the, for instance, a couple of the insights, you know, one is kids had certain views or certain things matched up well. And those are things that could be used for marketing uh, in a way. Yeah. It's not just total trivia, right? But the question is, is there some point where you'd say, yeah, that this was fun fact, but you really need to study this with another thousand people, right? Yeah. Just, I, and yeah, I would even say, given this data set, if you wanted to prove out the things that popped up, then yes, you'd want to study it with a thousand people next. Can data be too small? I'm tempted to say no, other than if your sample size is one, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then it's data about myself or someone else that I'm just studying knowing. And then you're getting more into like customer experience and insights. Right. And it's not data as much as just learning about a specific person. When you add, when you get to a sample size of two, you get to do a few comparisons and you it starts enabling you to ask questions. So that's when I make the judgment call of, is this data worthwhile? If it inspires me to ask more questions that might require me to collect more data, it's still worthwhile because I've started to ask questions. So if I have two people tasting LaCroix and they both have the same favorite, now I can ask, well, is it everyone's favorite? Does everyone love this the most? And if so, why do they make the other ones? Or if they're different, I can say, well, why were they different? And was it just that one that they were different on? Or did they have different tastes overall all the way down through the bracket? And so it leads me down that path. And I think that's sort of the value. And the teeny tiniest data can lead you down a path and give you a clue. And you might figure out later once you gather more data that you were chasing something that wasn't real, but it's inspiring more thought and more ideas that push you further. All right. So what makes you excited about data? I mean, it sounds like a real passion for you. I, I love data too. Somehow I've ended up not on the data scientist path. I, I don't know. I think I, I don't know how I missed that because I, I missed do love calling. the same no. thing here. I missed my calling and became a project manager. It's, it's sad. Uh, really. But what <laughs> makes you passionate about it? I like what it can 
tell me and how it can influence decisions. So I talked about how my background's in engineering. Mm -hmm. So I'm all about solving problems and that's what I want to do. And when I went into engineering without the specific data mindset, I saw that people were easily convinced away from solutions or convinced that they shouldn't put in the effort or whatever the case may be. And so when I ran into that, I started using data to back up my solutions that I was suggesting. And suddenly people were like, oh, that's a real thing. Okay, now I get it. I see your reasoning and numbers. And so let's make smarter decisions together. And so I have some examples of that from my previous life, like at the Department of Veterans Affairs, where we used data to inform equipment purchase decision making, uh, which is a totally like very niche thing. But before it was just Dr. Smith wants to buy such and such. And so we buy it. But when you start adding in the data of, well, we see that breakdown more often and it gets more user errors, then it's a new conversation. So that's what makes me passionate about data is it helps people see things that they otherwise wouldn't have seen that help them solve their problems in a way they might not have thought of. So data can be counterintuitive and it challenges what we think, especially if you're really deep in your role and you've been there a long time, you have preconceived notions and that can be really good because it lets you move quickly and it can be really bad because things can change and you don't realize it. And the data sort of augments what you already know and what you think, and it gives you that new perspective. So that was, mm-hmm. that's what makes me passionate. That's why I apply data in all areas of life, whether it be work or Disney or uh, tasting tournaments. But yeah, it's that augmentation of what we already know to help us make different decisions moving forward. All right. right. So uh, your blog article discussed an experiment uh, with what you called, well, you called small data. So yeah. Yeah, but you made a distinction between big data and small data. Obviously, big data being a big fad of, you know, yeah. if you have bits of data on absolutely everything, somehow there's this is going to reveal the, the patterns of the universe. So, how do you summarize the distinction, the uses, you know, between small and big data? Uh, it's probably a fuzzy line. There's mm-hmm. it, in our work world, there's a distinction based on the tools that you're using usually and how you're approaching them. You typically want big data to do real things like machine learning or artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence where you're informing data sets. It's hard to do that sort of thing with small data because then you're tending to bias. I tend to think of it in my personal life, my Mm -hmm. cutoff. If I can handle something easily in SQL and those normal sort of (laughs) everyday tools, like that's still small data. So that could be millions and millions of rows with hundreds Mm -hmm. of columns and whatever. Uh, That's still small data to me. Big data is when it starts to get unmanageable in those everyday people know how to use them sort of tools. Not that everyone knows how to use SQL. Well, let's be contrarians for a moment on big data. Okay, that was was a big thing, and it seems to have faded a little bit. But everyone was like, oh, we're going to have these, you know, big data, you know, whether it was uh, data lakes, all these different data structures, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a new one every five years. Yeah. Can big data be so big that people are hung up on getting the data and they don't really get anything out of it? Oh, absolutely. And that's where the balance comes in. And since I specialize in data strategy, we're going to go down that path a little bit here. It's where that balance comes in of discoverability of data Mm -hmm. and also security of data. 
once your data starts getting so, so big, it's hard to find what you actually need. And if you make it easy to find, then it's hard to secure appropriately. And right. so there's this balancing act and there's certain technologies that help enable it, but really it's a process thing within companies. Once you get big enough and tons of companies are big enough where you have data in silos, but you know, people need it, but you know, not everyone needs it. And you have these rules, and GDPR, right? We've gotten to this totally complex landscape of big data being hard to manage and hard to actually find and use. And those are big, big problems. So big data comes with big problems. It also can lead to really big solutions and really cool things for customers. But small data helps you avoid some of those same issues because it's more manageable. And you can put it in a box and think about it in ways that make more sense. Okay. Now, your article took us through the process of analyzing the data. And, and you pretty much put every single thought and every step on that. Uh, which <laughs> yeah. Made a- I mean, cool. It was like you're reading you're reading data like you were reading text or prose. Yeah. Um, how do you do it? You look at a data set. What are you looking for? That's a good question. What stands out to me when I look at a data set for the first time? And because that's something I do in my everyday life, in my work life, in my home life. Everyone sees a set of numbers and you can either do something with it or not. So the way I approach data sets, no matter what the data set is if I'm seeing it for the first time, I ask myself questions that I'm curious about or that I know need to be answered, especially if it relates to sort of client work. So when I'm doing a tasting tournament with friends, I'm interested. I want to know as a human being, do my tastes match up with everyone else's? And so then I look in the data and figure out a way to mathematically answer that question. Or what's the worst flavor? Like, I really hated hibiscus. (laughs) Who would make a bubbly water that tastes like a flower, right? But did everyone else hate it? And is it the worst? And if so, like, why the heck did they even make that flavor? Uh, Things like that. So it's just my base curiosity, asking questions, and then using that to pull things out of the data. And then you're starting with the question. I'm starting with the question. Okay. Otherwise, it's just like random. You could start by profiling the data, and uh, that's no fun, though. I mean, you have to do that in some circumstances, but I'm always approaching it with a question, especially if it's a brand new data set that's complicated in an industry that I don't know. I'm going to ask curious questions. I'm going to see if I can answer them. And if I can, that usually leads me to finding more things, learning more about the data. Oh, there's a column I didn't know existed and then trying to go down that path. So it really is informed by curiosity and then sort of an entrepreneurial spirit almost of like, okay, what next? What can I answer next and what's in there? And what questions can I not answer that if I had more data, I could. And just chasing all of those rabbit holes, which can get really big really quickly, but in a small data set, you can explore all those corners and then figure out what other data you would need to collect to chase your paths further. Right. So just to recap a couple of things in terms of what I've heard, one of the things is you yeah. start with a question, and, and that's great because that means that you're looking at the data with a well, with a business purpose typically in mind, right. right? The second thing is it's particularly valuable looking at data that maybe you're not necessarily familiar with or a business process you're not familiar with because – you know, my other thought would be, oh, you're going through and you're looking for outliers, you know, some data that that says something 
is out of sync, right? You know, control yep. control charts from industrial management. Well, the problem is if you don't know what the data is supposed to look like, you don't know what to look for. So right. that's why yeah. you asked the question. You have to question. familiarize yeah. yourself. And all data, like data in a silo doesn't mean anything. And at Centric, we're really big on people, process, and technology. Mm -hmm. I'm huge that that data doesn't stay in a silo. Data impacts people and it impacts processes and it impacts businesses as a whole. You have to approach it from that process and that business value mindset. Otherwise, you're just going to be trying to come up with some cool number and that number's not actually going to have context or value. So to your point, just looking for outliers, unless you know why it's an outlier and what outlier you're looking for and what that means further down the line, it's not going to mean much. And so it's making that connection from a number to an actual story. What does that number mean and what are you going to do with it? And it's a hard line to draw. That's why data storytelling is a thing, because a lot of us that enjoy playing with numbers aren't great at making that connection and telling a story. And, and so we're the technical people that are behind our computers and just crunching numbers and writing code because we like writing code. So that's a thing. On the other end, like you've got business leaders that just don't understand data. That happens all the time. Right. Uh, and so they can't make that link either. And so that's a, a, a big miss on data literacy. So you have to invest in one or the one or the other, ideally both, so that you have people that are pushing the data into stories and you've got people that know the right questions to ask to be able right. to pull the data to answer those questions. So if you're trying to train somebody or if somebody said, hey, train me, I've heard a couple things. One is maybe list out the questions that you're trying to get the data to answer as well, and as, well as being aware of maybe what the data is you know, unable to answer. Um, right. And then proceeding from there, what else would you do? What, how else would you teach somebody to read data? To be, a, yeah. Oh, to be data literate or to go the other way, right? There's there's yeah. the two directions. There's storytelling and then there's literacy and being able to do both. If I was teaching someone, let's go with storytelling first. If I was teaching someone how to be a data storyteller, they know the numbers, they don't know how to communicate them. I would say, start by making it relatable, however you can. And so mm -hmm. instead of making it numbers, make it tell a story. And there's super simple ways of doing this, right? I, I had a client where I was totally revamping their software. They wanted a new mm -hmm. software app to do a cool thing and make it mm -hmm. look better for customers. And I was proposing back to them, you don't need new software. You can have new software. That's fine. What you really <laughs> need is a new way to store your data. Like you need right. a new data architecture and you need to split these things up which is really hard to sell people on, especially if they've already decided they want cool new looking software, right? And so I could have pre presented the numbers that said, you're gonna speed yourselves up by X percent and mm -hmm. whatever. And instead I made a little animation where each widget, we'll mm -hmm. call it, was a box. And I put two animations side by side. One was their current state with new software, but still current state. One was the new architecture underlying and I started clicking through time and showing them their widgets as they appeared. And suddenly like eyeballs exploded open and people wow. started exclaiming, this is what we need, right? And then they <laughs> went down that path. Uh, uh -huh. And so that's like, it's boxes on a screen popping up at a certain time. I didn't have to know 
what their business was. I didn't have to know what their customers really needed, etc. I was just literally visualizing numbers instead of telling them numbers. So that's where you start. You give them something to latch onto that their brain can actually understand. And then you make it engaging. You make it fun. You add animation or you add silly smiley faces. Not that that's always appropriate in a business setting, but you I'll make them- things up a little bit. It looks good. Right. Yeah. You make them want to know more. And visuals often help with that. Instead of a table, you put a teeter-totter that shows them balance (laughs) or whatever the case may be. And then, so going the opposite direction, data literacy, it just becomes important. Anytime you ask a question, you start asking yourself how you would get the answer to that. And if you get different answers from just different business units, ask yourself why instead of just getting frustrated. And you start getting curious about the path to get your own answers. And that usually leads you closer to the data. And you don't have to understand how to pull it yourself, but you start understanding things like, well, this software doesn't talk to that software, but they both sort of deal with the same question. And so if people pull me answers from two different locations, I'm seeing different things. And do I need to understand both of those? Do they need to tie together? And you start asking more questions and that'll help you along that learning path to understand the numbers themselves and not just ask questions into the abyss and hope that you get (laughs) the right solutions or the right answers back. Do you get resistance from executives sometimes on on the use of data? Never. (laughs) 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 Do executives resist it? Yes, absolutely all the time. So we talked about this earlier. Executives get to where they are because they're good at what they do. They have an innate understanding of their business, and typically they've been there a long time. And so when they get resistance to data is when, one, they feel like it's slowing them down. Two, they feel like it's putting them at risk, like it's not properly secured. They worry the wrong people might see the wrong things and then get the wrong idea about how their business is doing, whatever. Or three, when it tells them something that's counterintuitive to them and challenges what Mm -hmm. they know. Uh, And so they'll not always be resistant to that third because some are very forward thinking and like they understand, but often that's hard because they know what they know and that's how they've gotten to where they are. And so if you've got something that suddenly tells them, well, we might need to shift that thinking, they tend towards questioning that result uh, more than they tend towards, okay, let's chase that immediately. And that's probably healthy uh, because you don't want to toss your decades of experience just because one number says something. But that's why trusting the data and understanding where the data is coming from and having all of that built out appropriately is really important so that when a number does tell you something that you don't understand, you know if you can trust it or not, you understand it, and you can make decisions instead of immediately reacting and pulling back from it. So, yeah. There's definitely hesitation and you got to work through it by helping them (laughs) understand and relate and move forward. (laughs) I'm going to do something a little different and I apologize. This was not in any of the questions I asked, but I think we'll (laughs) have a little bit of fun here. I think it's a little bit of a data storytelling and I'm afraid, you know, I haven't provided you with any data, so you're going to have to conjecture on some of this. So today's political situation, everyone talks about how polarized things are. And I had this hypothesis that, 
in actual fact, there's a gigantic center of the country uh, where people basically are all in agreement with their, you know, on, on most social issues. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a little bit of time on probably one of your favorite websites, the Pew Research website. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And went through a number of different social questions. And I found, you know, a whole pile of them where 65 to 70% of the people polled all come up with the same point of view. Mm -hmm. You know, and these are on all of the hottest social topics of the day. Yep. yep. So I, here's, here's my question. I look at that and go, okay, I feel like my original hypothesis is somewhat borne out by that. But as a data analyst, data scientist, how would you look at and go, if I, I had 12 different items like that, all right? Yeah. How far can I take that or how much of a of quicksand am I running into by making that sort of projection? <laughs> well, eh, yeah, this is a loaded question a little bit because <laughs> of the subject matter, but I think you're going about it the right way, right? You have a hypothesis in your mind. You had a question initially before you had data. You're like, things seem really polarized. Are they really, right? So that's the perfect spot to start for when you want to answer a question with data and start telling a story and maybe changing the narrative. Then you went somewhere and you found the actual data. And then the question becomes, did you self-select the data? Did you only pull the questions you thought wouldn't be polarizing, right? And so that's where you have to start challenging yourself a little bit. Uh, but there's still a story to tell there. Like, yes, some issues are very polarizing and mm -hmm. are split down the middle and people feel very strongly about them. But instead of focusing on those, maybe we start shifting the story. And we do. We purposely focus on the questions that have a vast majority of people agreeing on it. And we can use that as our common ground. And then people, it'll help people realize. So I think that part of the story often gets disregarded. And this is, there's a huge correlation between this, and I know we're talking politics, but between this and the business world too. The thing that everyone agrees on and everyone accepts, that doesn't sell. That doesn't get people excited, right? right. It's, it's not disruption, new. right? Yeah. Right. It's new. It's, we need the new, we need the different, we need the controversial because that's what attracts people and keeps us going. And so that applies to business and that applies to politics. And so in news cycles and social media, I don't even want to get into the whole social media, media yeah. algorithm thing, <laughs> but it takes itself down that path because right. that's what people react to are the polarizing things. And so then that's the story that gets repeated. So it is a data storytelling thing. So you're going down the right path. It's just not a lot of people are incentivized to tell that side of the story. And so that data does get ignored. And so that's where data storytelling really becomes sort of a burden, uh, a moral burden, right? And it can be, especially for consultants, it can be a burden for us, for our clients, because anytime you take a step away from just the numbers and you start applying a layer onto it to help people understand, you're taking on the burden of making sure that layer isn't actually changing what the data says. You're not introducing right. bias based on how you're telling the story. And so figuring out the right way to do that is a little bit of a tightrope walk uh, and making sure that you're telling the story, but you're not filtering it in a way that's actually skewing based on what you want it to say. So right. data storytelling can be for good or for evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that worried me very directly in the statistics is, let's say there's statement A and 65% of people 
agree, strongly agree with yeah. statement A. And then statement B, 65% of people strongly agree, agree. It doesn't mean it was exactly the same people. And that's also true. Yeah. And there, you so, have to be able to get down to the details. Now, yeah. when you're talking about 65%, You've got to have a pretty strong overlap between the two things because you were talking about sort of a supermajority, right. but it would be a mistake to project 65% yeah. of people would all vote this the same way on 15 different topics just right. because that's yes. the standard number. It would yeah. be slightly different. Yes, agreed. <laughs> so that's another good point. Like you have to be able to get down into the details. You can't ask a question, see an answer, and assume it's the right answer and go with it. You have to be a little bit more investigative. Uh, and that's part of that curiosity, too, to get down and make sure that, yeah, this is real and make sure that I'm not being biased. You have to check yourself a little bit. And that's that's why it's better to do it in teams, too. I'm a data storyteller, but I have a team and they call me out on things <laughs> and I call them out on things. It's that diversity of perspective. And that's why as consultants, we're valuable, too. We have a totally different perspective than the executive that's been there for decades doesn't right. mean our perspective's right and theirs is wrong or vice versa. We have to layer those together to be able to figure out the right thing. So anytime you're doing something in a silo, whether it's data in a silo, thinking in a silo, people in a silo, it's not good. You have to break those down and that's when you're going to get the right answers. All right. All right. You know, we've covered what I had on here. Is, is there anything, you know, anything I didn't hit, anything you'd love to say, this is what I want to tell everybody in the world about data. <laughs> no, I do have something here. Okay. So what's one thing I want people to focus on? I think I'll do a little bit of future casting. And okay. that's in the past several years, data itself has been very sort of cloud focused. Get everything centralized, mm -hmm. get everything to the cloud, get yourself a data lake or house or warehouse or lake house or fabric <laughs> or mesh, like whatever. <laughs> and they right. all mean slightly different things, but yeah. you know, whatever the topic word buzzword of the day is, get yourself on those, but they're all about centralization and securing it. And mm -hmm. I think the next wave is going to go in the opposite direction because people are starting to realize that it's good. I mean, Cloud-based data is definitely the way to go and definitely good. I'm not anti-cloud, but it is very centralized. And I think we're going to start seeing a push towards decentralization because you need the people actually doing the work and making decisions to have the data, to understand the data, to use the data and impact it real time. And they can't do that when they have to go through a central analytics group who then relies on right. IT. To, you can't innovate at that speed, right. uh, it's way too slow. And so I would encourage companies to start preparing and make data literacy pushes and make data storytelling pushes because you want the people that can impact change to understand the data and be able to act on it as fast as possible. So there will be technology implications to that, but there will also be, it's gonna be more process implications and people implications. And can you secure your data in a way that everyone can use it quickly? And can you train them so that they know what they're looking at and make good decisions and quick reactions based on it? That's going to enable your company to move faster than anyone else. And so that's why I think that's what the next wave is going to be. So I tell people, start preparing for that now. <laughs> yeah, actually, it makes a lot of sense. The, the whole cloud and big data view, one thing I would infer from it is that people think, well, you put all the data here and you're going to reveal connections we didn't know were there. Mm, uh, yeah. But to me, the, the likelihood is 
those could be false, right? It's like right. there's an old study from the 1960s, which was done, you know, just just to prove the causality problem in data, right? Which is, right. you know, they surveyed how many women had strawberries and how many women got pregnant and said, well, obviously there's a connection here. Women eat <laughs> strawberries right. to get pregnant. And the fact that it was all in your database doesn't mean that it's actually connected. But if you right. decentralize so that people are focusing on the data that makes sense for them, then yeah. you're, you know, you're, right. you're, you're getting you rid want, of some noise too. You yeah. want all of your data to be able to tie it together. So if I'm a big financial company, I don't want my customer data to be separated from my merchant data. I want those to be able to enhance each other because that's going to give me more insights. But I don't want all that happening in a silo and so complex that bank teller A or whoever can't access what they should access and be able to figure out something new. My team of analysts only has a certain perspective and they have good perspectives, but the people actually doing the work have much deeper understanding of what the data actually means and right. that they can actually do something with it. And so that's where the value is going to be is taking that hop from an analytics cohort, which I'm all for analytics cohorts. Uh -huh. Some people don't even have those, but taking that leap to no, everyone is your analytics cohort and ca how cool. can you enable them to do that? Cool. All right, so I got to leap back to something from the very beginning of our yeah. conversation. What Disney data are you studying? <laughs> uh, crowd data, also satisfaction data. Uh, so Disney World has... Is this publicly available data, or is this something oh, that you have an in on? Uh, a little bit of both. <laughs> there is a lot of publicly available data, yes. And so you can see anytime anyone that has Disney's app you can go in and see what their posted wait times are. I have right. some a little bit of insider data because uh, there's a group of people that times their actual waits. And so then we can get differences in between what Disney's telling you it's going to be and what it actually is. So once you start aggregating that data about wait times and layering in information about like school calendars, <laughs> so when are kids <laughs> going to be off and going, weather, macroeconomics, who can afford to go, start layering all that together for years and years and years, you can pretty accurately start predicting when people are going to go and when it's not uh -huh. going to be crowded. Spoiler alert, always go the week after Labor Day, always the least crowded week of the year. Oh. That's when my family goes, also the cheapest. <laughs> but then you can take it layers <laughs> down, right? So it's not just when you go, it's uh, what day you go to what park. And when you're in right. that park, People are really predictable. <laughs> and so everyone starts in fantasy land and they do those things and then they move around. And so if you know that about everyone, you can zig when they zag. I, I always go to the, the I always go over to Pirates of the Caribbean first. You're the smart one. See, yeah. you're, you've got it down. But uh, so, yeah. so actually, I like the taste test idea, right? So I want to see the comparison <laughs> that says the people who love Pirates of the Caribbean also do, Oh. You know, but, oh, but, now but they don't excited. do, what is it? Yes. Dumbo and they don't do the teacups, right? Yes. Oh, so we have that too. Uh, <laughs> so a couple things here. I've done, similar to tasting tournament, I've run a large scale like online resort tournament. So there's a lot of different <laughs> resorts at Disney World. And so having people rate those and seeing what comes out on top. So that was interesting. But you can, you can also see Ed, I would love for someone to build something like, uh, you know, Pandora or those things that learn what you like from music right. and then 
So if I have an app and I start saying, oh, I liked that, and I didn't like that, start suggesting to me, that would be pretty easy to do based on a lot of data that people have. But I, yeah, I agree. Starting to do that sort of suggesting proactively what you would enjoy because Disney vacations are expensive. So I'm not going to yeah. just drop a bunch of money and not do my research, although a bunch of people do, and show up and be overwhelmed. And now I have 30 rides to choose from and from the Magic Kingdom. And I don't know what I'm going to like or what my kids are going to like. And I yeah. do the wrong ones and I hate it and I think it's stupid. And that can be the difference knowing what to do and what you're more likely to enjoy and what you won't. Yeah. yeah. So using the data, even for vacations, hack your yeah. vacation, go for it. I've been at Disney World a very long time. I I actually like going probably more than most of my family, but we, the <laughs> last time we went, our kid was, I think eight and yeah. we were somewhere in the magic kingdom and realized they were taking pictures of birds. Huh? Like, it's like they didn't like the characters. They didn't want to be on most of the rides. It's like, but these flowers are really good. These birds are really neat. I'm like, nice. we've taken the wrong vacation. <laughs> yeah, at that, that point, you have. I agree. Yeah, we. my husband had only been to Disney World once before I got married to him. Uh, and the only thing he remembered from his trip was that he was too short for Space Mountain. And so nothing else mattered. <laughs> and so now we're very intentional about bringing our kids to things that they can do and can enjoy so that they don't remember walking up to Space Mountain and uh, being yeah. really disappointed that they can't go on it and things like that. Just being smart about how we do our vacations, but we don't just do Disney World, to your point. We like uh, being well-balanced <laughs> in our vacation. All right. Well, we could probably chat for a long time. Uh, yeah. Actually, look forward to catching up with you at our spring meeting. And sure, yeah. What your latest vacations are. But uh, this has been awesome. I really appreciate your time and your uh, enthusiasm Thanks. for the topic. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This has been Centric Biz and Tech Talks. Thanks to Becky Gandolin for joining me today, and thank you for listening.